Welcome to the Junkets Games Podcast, where in today's episode, you'll be hearing the audio from a top 10 list I just put out, where I discussed my favorite games that came out in 2020, and there is a spoiler-filled list of all of these in the description of this podcast if you want to check that out. Now, at this point, I do want to mention that the only reason this podcast is being made is because of the direct support that comes in through the Patreon campaign for the channel. If you enjoy listening to my vlogs in podcast form just like this, then I do hope that you would consider directly supporting the campaign, and you can learn more about that by going to patreon.com slash Games. The final thing I'd like to ask is that if you have any questions or comments about anything I say today, that you leave those as comments on the YouTube page for the vlog, and you can find a link to that in the description of this podcast. All right, let's now jump into the list, although before I start with number 10, I'd like to briefly talk about my criteria for making the list, as well as one honorable mention. As far as criteria is concerned, these are games that seemed like they came out in 2020. I think technically some of them are listed as 2019 releases on BoardGameGeek because they were released somewhere in 2019, but they seemed like they hit the mass uh, audience in 2020, and that's certainly when I was able to try these games. Um, not all of these games were played for the first time in 2020. One of them in particular I played in January of 2021, but it was a game that came out several months ago. And uh, yeah, I think all of these games effectively came out in 2020. Uh, I do want to mention that I have played some games very recently that are not going to be on this list because I just felt like they were too far out of scope. In particular, those are Darwin's Journey and Carnegie, both games that were just up on Kickstarter um, that I have just played online in effectively uh, prototype versions, although it's a very finalized prototype. The games are effectively done, and I liked both of them well enough that um, I think one or possibly both of them would be on a top 10 list, but it just doesn't make sense to me to add either of those games considering um, they, they do not exist yet. <laughs> they have not been published or produced just yet, so um, it's possible that one or both of those will show up in a, a top 10 list for 2021 games. Um, now, I did mention I have one honorable mention. Uh, it's effectively game number 11, uh, and that one is The King's Dilemma. This is a campaign game that I talked about at length in one of my impressions vlogs, and I enjoyed the experience of the campaign. We played it 16 times to complete the campaign, but as far as a game is concerned, I think I liked the other 10 games that I'm going to be talking about more. Uh, but I did want to um, mention that. You know, I played it 16 times, so it deserves a, a slight mention here um, in honorable mention spots at an effective number 11. Uh, either way, let's now move into game number 10, and that one is Praga Kaput Regni. This is a game that I have only played once so far. It was a four-player game, and I talked about it at length in an impressions vlog. And this is uh, the newest game designed by Vladimir Suchi, who uh, designed Underwater Cities and many other games. And I love Underwater Cities. Um, I liked Praga Ragni quite a bit. I've only played it the one time. Uh, I really would like to play it more, but the fact that I haven't made another play of that happen just yet is part of the reason why it's farther up on this list than potentially vying to be uh, lower down. Um, if I play this a few more times, it's possible that my opinion of it will change and will likely get better overall, but, you know, I can't really say that right now, and I did want to put this uh, top 10 list out now instead of, you know, waiting another many months until I played all of these games a lot more times. Um, Plaga Kaput Regni has a great action selection mechanism where you are uh, taking from a mechanical wheel on the board and each of the tokens you take gives you two options, so you have a good variety of things that you can do, and you are 
building out a kind of tableau-based engine with um, hex tiles that will match up next to each other in order to give you bonuses. I guess calling it an engine is, is not quite correct, but you are just doing a lot of things on this um, somewhat busy board as you're building out a city, you're walking down a road to get various bonuses, uh, you're moving tokens along a couple of little mini-games. There's a lot of great component quality to this game, and I am looking forward to playing this one more. Uh, like I said, it's possible that it would get bumped down a couple more levels, uh, but I'm about to talk about a bunch of other great games, and so that's why Praga is going to end up on this spot. Now we can move on to game number nine, and that one is Dune Imperium. Uh, now, I've played this game twice at this point, and I've been quite impressed. This is a deck-building game uh, that's also a worker placement game, and it is both of those in somewhat equal measure. You have two workers, and on your turn, you send them out to a spot on the board, and no one else can go where you went, but you can only go to a spot that matches up with an icon on a card that you also play from your hand. Um, in this game, you will have five cards at the start of your turn, and you have a couple of workers, so you're going to play two of those cards in order to place workers, again, based off of the criteria of those symbols. And then the other cards that you have at the end of uh, the round, effectively, you can lay them out, and on the bottom, you will get bonuses, which will, in general, give you buying power to purchase more cards that you can add into your deck. So this game has a couple of interesting layers where you're trying to make sure that you have good cards as far as the worker placement spots that you're going to, so that you're not um, uh, having trouble going to places that you need to go because you don't have the right cards. But you also want to make sure that you have strong cards in other ways as you're trying to work towards uh, just getting 10 victory points. This game is a relatively low amount of points um, that causes the game to end, and also um, that means that victory points are um, a big deal. <laughs> Each individual one is, is something that you definitely want to strive for. Um, I've been impressed with the two plays of this that I've had so far. I've won them both, so I guess I have a little bit of a winner's bias going on there. Um, there is some hidden information with some random draw cards that can give you a wide variety of benefits, and those can definitely upset the tide of the game, and I think some people aren't going to like those. Uh, so far, I've been okay with those, but again, I've won both games. I haven't been particularly burned by those just yet, so perhaps that would change my opinion. But I think this game is a lovely package. I like the, the Dune IP in general. I read most of the books as a teenager, so that definitely draws me into it uh, as well. I think as far as uh, theme is concerned, it, it pulls it off pretty well. It feels like the theme is connected quite well to the actions that you are doing. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to playing this one more. I've played this one a couple of times. Um, this one has kind of been vying with Praga. I've thought maybe this one should be nine or 10 based off of uh, uh, both of these games. And I think this one I like slightly more than Praga after that uh, one play of the other game. And that's why it's here. Th these two games were very close. All right, next up we have Hallertau in the eighth position. This is a game that I've played uh, three times so far, all on Tabletop Simulator. Uh, the copy of this game that I purchased several months ago has still not arrived. Unfortunately, it got stuck somewhere in shipping in the middle of the Atlantic or something. But either way, I'm glad I've been able to play this one, uh, even as I'm waiting for my copy to arrive. This is the newest Uwe Rosenberg game, and it has some really cool stuff going on. It's a worker placement style game where your workers are just generic cubes, and you place them out into a board in the middle of the table, occupying different spots. And each spot can have uh, one, two, or three workers placed on it. So there is an incentivization type of game going on where the more people like that action, the more workers they have to spend to actually do it. But then a big part of the game is maybe going to other spots where you can more efficiently use your workers, which are these cubes, to get more actions uh, on your turn. Um, now, 
this game is all about cards. There are a ton of cards that come in the game, and realistically, you should be getting a bunch of cards, playing a bunch of cards. Those cards will let you get more cards. This game is um, all about <laughs> those cards to a certain extent. There are two big things to focus on, but getting those cards out will give you income that will give you stuff in each round and also just give you stuff for already having done stuff or maybe for spending stuff. So uh, this is a great game as far as um, trying to uh, match up for goals. Essentially, you look at your hand and you're like, okay, I want to have three barley and six wheat in order to play this card out, which will give me a sheep. And then having that sheep will let me play this card out here, which wants me to have three sheep in order to do this over thing, which is going to give me some flax. And you can kind of try to chain these things together. Or at least you will certainly try to. You do draw these cards randomly from the top of a deck. But um, in my uh, several plays of this, I have been not that good at the game, but I have seen people much better than I play like twice as many cards as I have. And I think there's a lot of skill based in the game trying to work with those cards. I've certainly seen certain players consistently win. So I think there's a lot of skill there. Um, another big part of the game is spending your multitude of resources trying to move this house thing over in your area. The more you move it over, the more um, uh, workers you get at the start of the round and potentially victory points you get. I don't want to go into the details of that, but Effectively, you are trying to gain cards and match re uh, requirements to play these cards out, which will give you stuff. You will also be planting various uh, things into fields that I won't go into the details of, which will give you a bunch of resources that you then use to move your house over to get you workers so that you can then draw more cards and get more stuff to match up the cards. That's the kind of cycle. I think the game is great overall. I'm not very good at it. I've definitely been a little bit frustrated with the cards part of this game. Uh, in uh, at least one of my plays, I felt really frustrated. Like I just could not get these cards played. They were not synergizing very well and I was seeing other people playing cards like crazy. But again, I've also seen uh, certain people in this game uh, consistently win over and over again. So I think there is a skill gap there. I don't think I've figured out how to be as efficient as I can in order to play tactically with the cards. And I am looking forward to this puzzle more. It is worth noting that this is a relatively quick game. Uh, I have played a two-player game of this in like an hour and 15 minutes, and I've played a three-player game of this in just over 90 minutes. So it's not a crazy long game. And because of that, it's been played a lot in our group. I've only played it three times, but I do anticipate playing it more. All right, let's now move on to game number seven, which is Pandemic Legacy Season Zero. Uh, now, I'm not going to spoil any of the legacy parts of this game, and I have played this one seven times so far with my wife. We are currently going through the campaign. Um, now, we've not completed the campaign, so it's a little bit funny to talk about it, considering we have only played through essentially uh, five-twelfths of the game, almost half of the game overall. Um, we did play the prologue a couple of times, but the reason I wanted to talk about it and still put it on this list is because, well, we have still played it seven times, and so we've experienced this game a lot, and it's got a uh, some really great stuff added into the pandemic system. Uh, from a non-spoiler perspective, the only thing I'm going to mention that you learn about in the very first prologue game is the twist mechanically for this game is that you actually spend your cards in order to make these little uh, teams that are little uh, vans, and then those will be out on the board for the rest of the game, and they just move around, essentially hoovering up the disease uh, that's on the board. Although in this case, um, it's actually Soviet agents. It's kind of a Cold War theme instead of being a disease theme. So in Pandemic Legacy Season 1, it was just Pandemic, where you were playing cards to eradicate diseases. In Season 2, the game was all about, um, uh, realistically, well, I'm not going to spoil that either, but that game was kind of an inverse Pandemic, where instead of removing cubes, it was all about putting cubes down to uh, stockpile. And in Season 3, it's all about generating more workers, essentially, that can be moved around by anyone, they are neutral, that can be very efficient at uh, taking things off the board, and we have really liked that mechanic. We've also liked some other stuff, which I'm not going to spoil, that we've already seen just going through the first five months out of 12 months in the campaign. 
And uh, we're very much looking forward to seeing where this one is going to go. And that's why it is uh, relatively high on this list at seven. I guess it's not in the bottom half. Uh, maybe it would fight to go even farther down once I've actually completed the campaign. But again, I haven't quite got there yet. So for the moment, it's in the seventh position. Uh, let's now move on to game number six, which is Mandala. Now, this is a rather quick two-player only card game that I've been really impressed with. I played this game eight times. Uh, most of those were on Tabletop Simulator, and I liked it so much that I did go out and buy my own copy. And I played Played, I think three times with my own copy, so I think five times online and three in person. Um, now this, uh, not going into the specifics of it, um, this is a game where you have cards that are square shaped that have six different colors, and it is a really interesting and surprisingly intense puzzle as you are playing these cards out into um, six different areas, effectively two different uh, battlefields between you and your opponent. Um, and I'm not going to go into the mechanical details of it, but this game has so much mind games in it because the cards that you play down onto the board will not only restrict what your opponent can place, but it also might restrict you. And it's all about trying to trigger a scoring in one of the two sides at the opportune moment where you can score more points than your opponent does. You have a track at the bottom of your board and the first card of every color that you score will go down to the leftmost spot. And that is a victory point modifier for all of those other cards that you gain. So that means if uh, in a game you take a yellow and it slots into the four-point spot, and then you're able to take three more yellows as the game goes on. Once the game is over, your yellows, those three, are then each worth four victory points because you have that yellow card on the four victory point spot. So there's a lot of jockeying trying to score things at the right time based off of the cards that you have already because you might score three cards, which will give you three points because they're one point each, and your opponent will score one card, giving them six points, and obviously that's bad. So <laughs> this game is not necessarily about taking the most cards, it's about taking the right cards. And um, it's just been wonderfully tense. Uh, each game takes about 20 to 25 minutes, so it's very quick to play, and I am very happy to have a copy of this one. I think mechanically it is super elegant and just a very impressive game. All right, let's move on to game number five, and this one is Railroad Evolution. Now, that's a short way of saying this is the Railroad Evolution expansion to the Railroad Revolution game. Try to say that three times fast. Uh, and the reason I am just talking about it as Railroad Evolution is because as far as I'm concerned, this is the way that the game always should have been. I really liked Railroad Revolution until we rather quickly realized that it had a flaw that we just could not get past, and it kind of killed the game for us. But I kept the game for a couple of years, hoping an expansion would come out that would magically fix it and turn it into one of my favorite games, and along came Railroad Evolution, which does do that, which is just so awesome. I'm so glad that that ended up happening. This expansion has you throwing away the old board and adding a bunch of new mechanics and tokens, and this is just such a pleasurable game to play. Uh, many Euro games that I like are very tight, um, you know, lots of agonizing decisions as you have almost no resources trying to figure out what you're going to do, and Railroad Evolution is the exact opposite of that. This is like being in uh, Candyland or something like that, where just everywhere there's just awesome stuff. Walk over there, there's awesome stuff. Walk over there, do great stuff. Uh, your opponents are going to be doing awesome stuff as well, and they can't really affect you. Um, they can get into spaces slightly before you, which means they will get slight advantages more so than you, but for the most part, um, there is a lot of um, just multiplayer solitaire in this game as you are doing a bunch of cool stuff. Do you want to do this? Sure. Do you want to do that? Sure, you can do that as well. But it's also not so open that, um, that your decisions don't actually matter. Your decisions certainly do matter. Uh, you will spend money like crazy, but then um, if you run out of money, well, then just take an action and get like $1,000, and now you can go ahead and spend that as well. So this game is all about managing your resources, managing your multitude of great options 
options. And with the railroad evolution expansion, you're also going to be managing some customized conditional endgame victory point scoring conditions. You are going to gather these as the game goes on, and you can actually amplify certain ones that you think are better than others based off of your current position. And I love doing that. <laughs> I like getting points for the things that I've already been doing, and I like after getting those, focusing on those things even more. And um, like I said, this game is just so much fun for me to play. Uh, the last time I played it, <laughs> I actually taught it to a friend of mine who had never played the original game. And this game honestly weirded my friend out. When the game was over, he was not sure if he liked it or not. He was just so um, kind of confused because of how open and how free it all was. Uh, after talking it through, he kind of figured it out more and he's quite interested in playing this one more. But um, <laughs> that should tell you something, that this is a, a season Euro game player who is, I think, very used to um, tighter, more constricted and uh, starved systems and just being thrown into an area where just you can get everything that you want, um, just really threw them off balance. Uh, once again, I, I do want to stress that uh, I have played some games before where you get so much stuff that your decisions don't end up mattering, but I really do think that this game toes a great line where you can get so much stuff, but your decisions do matter. You can get tons of money, but you can spend all that money surprisingly quickly, but then if you need more money, well, just take another action to take that money. Um, no one's going to block you from that. In fact, as you go deeper into the game, you get more and more money in order to fund the things that you're doing. Uh, so yeah, this is a joy of a game to play. I am so happy they made this expansion. Realistically, my only complaint is that I wish they had released this as a standalone game, as a standalone expansion just called Railroad Evolution, because um, I think a lot more people would be able to play this wonderful game. Right now, there is a big barrier to entry where you have to own the original game and buy the expansion, and the expansion did not not get a big print run, and you had to actually buy it directly from the uh, publisher in Europe. Uh, I, of course, did that, uh, but I think it's just a shame that this wonderful game experience is going to be hard for many people to actually try because it's actually hard to actually acquire. Uh, okay, let's now move on to game number four, and this one is Furnace. Um, now, this is an exceptionally elegant little engine building game. I say little, but it usually takes between 60 and 90 minutes to play, and uh, it has just the right amount of rules. And by that, I mean, it has very few rules. Uh, in this game, you're going to deal out a row of cards on the middle of the table, and they have an effect on the top and then an effect on the bottom. Now, what everybody has is these tokens that range from one up to four, and you bid on these cards by placing these tokens out onto them. And at the end of the round, once everybody's placed their tokens, the player with the highest bid number will take the card. And for the rest of the game, they can utilize the effect on the bottom, effectively building their engine. Now, what if you got outbid? You put a three there and somebody placed therefore, well, that's fine because there's an effect on the top, and that is a uh, essentially a consolation prize where you gain that as many times as the value of your bid. Maybe that lets you take two coal, and you put a three there, well, that's going to be three times two, or six coal. So that means you didn't get the card, somebody else did, but you got six coal, and you already have these other cards in front of you, so now you can use that coal to then feed it into the rest of your engine. Now, you're going to do all of this four times, and this game brings in a wonderful balance of trying to get the right cards to work together so that you can essentially make resources and then squeeze them through your engine as they become better and better and then end up turning into victory points uh, with also balancing intentionally underbidding on cards or placing a bid that you hope will be overbid from in order to activate the uh, special bonus that's on the top of the cards in the middle of the table. Um, I've essentially taught you the game <laughs> at this point. There's uh, obviously a couple little uh, smaller things, but this game is brilliant in my opinion. It's just so elegant. Uh, I am looking forward to getting a copy of this one 
because um, this is the kind of game that you can literally teach in about five minutes. And I've played this one with many of my friends who are really into uh, heavy euros, and several of them have really enjoyed this game as well. Uh, I would not call it a filler. Like, it usually does take over 90 minutes from what I could tell in my two games that I've played, uh, but it is quite crunchy. Like, there are some wonderful decisions that you're making as you're trying to place the bids, as well as once the bids are done, everybody simultaneously activates every single one of the cards in their area, trying to efficiently, again, turn these various resources into victory points. And uh, I've just been completely impressed with this game. I was expecting to like it, and even considering that, I was surprised at how much I did end up liking this one uh, after my first play, and uh, I liked it even more after my second play. There are some asymmetric characters that you can play with, and I used them in my first play, and I did not in the second, and I think I actually prefer the game without those characters. It makes it even more elegant and simple. There's even less rules to teach, and the game plays so well like that. So um, I could probably go on and on about Furnace, but uh, yeah, this game, I think, deserves deserves its place at number four, and that should tell you something about <laughs> games three, two, and one, considering just how much I enjoyed Furnace. Uh, so with that in mind, let's now move it into game number three, which is Beyond the Sun. Uh, this is actually the second game that I'm talking about that was published by Rio Grande, and I do want to mention that I was paid to make a sponsored tutorial for Beyond the Sun. So I am somewhat biased here. I do have an ongoing great relationship with Rio Grande games, so I guess take my opinion with a grain of salt, uh, but I do want to say that I have loved playing Beyond the Sun this year. I've played this one five times so far, and mechanically, this is a game all about communally building out a tech tree in the middle of the table. Um, now, I, again, made a video, so if you want to learn more about this, then check out that tutorial. But at a very high level, this is a worker placement game where you have just one worker, and you always have that one worker, and you are going to move it to a new spot every single turn. So it's more of a worker movement game. And many of the spots that you go to will be technologies that um, you have potentially invested in learning throughout the game. And whenever you learn new technology, you draw two options from the top of a deck based off of some criteria, and then you select one of them. So it's not fully random. You do have a choice there, and those decisions can be wonderful. Now, after you make that decision, you put it down onto the board, and that will be that technology for that spot for the rest of the game. And your opponents can then come after you and research that same technology. So there's a bit of a race to be the first person to uh, learn about these technologies because you can decide what they're going to be. But there's also uh, nothing wrong with uh, coming in right behind somebody else who's learning great technologies and then learning them yourself. Many of these technologies unlock new spots that you can place your worker. And the other big part of the game involves a, uh, I guess, universe board or galaxy board. It's got a bunch of planets on it. And you are going to be uh, making these various ships, and you're going to be moving them around trying to take control of various planets. And um, through certain means, you can actually uh, colonize those planets, putting them in front of you, getting you points and special effects. Um, there's a bunch more going on in Beyond the Sun, uh, but the reason this one is so far up is because I have seen such wildly divergent plays of this one through my five plays. Uh, after one play, I remember I really enjoyed it, and one of my friends commented like, yeah, but I wonder if it's going to feel kind of the same every time you play. And after playing this one five times, I can say that it definitely does not. I've played games of this where the uh, technology is super dominant. Uh, I've played other games where the person who won barely invested in any technology, and they went crazy on the uh, the board where they moved their ships around and colonized various planets. Um, the reason these can be so different is because there are randomized achievements that come out at the start of the game that are going to give you bonus points for doing particular things, but also so the technologies themselves really do shift the pattern of the game. Uh, I've seen uh, games, like I said, where the first few technologies that were taken were very military-based, and those military effects usually have something to do with making and moving your ships around from the planets. And in uh, those games, those are the ones where it becomes a very planet 
focused game as people are vying for those military technologies. I've also played games where almost no military tech came out, so we were not going for the planets as much, and then there was a big, um, you know, uh, gold rush, essentially, for the technologies, because those do give you a decent amount of points as well. And I've seen a wide variety of cases that are kind of between those two. Uh, I've certainly played with just about all of the technologies now. I don't think I really draw a new one and say, oh, I've never seen that one before. But the way these technologies actually uh, fit in with various other technologies are going to make one game so different from the other. And yeah, it's just a joy jumping into this game to see what is going to come out of it. I, in general, really enjoy tech trees in games. So the fact that we are communally building a uh, tech tree in a competitive atmosphere uh, just pushes this game so far up this list. <laughs> I uh, honestly considered if this one should be in fourth and Furnace should be in third, but the joy I've had from the different varied experiences of playing Beyond the Sun uh, just barely kicks it up a notch and brings it into the third place spot. I'm looking forward to playing this one uh, more in the future. Uh, hypothetically, I believe there's going to be an expansion coming out, which is going to add even more variety, although at this point I do not feel like the game needs it, but I certainly would take more, because <laughs> why not? Uh, but as it stands, uh, yeah, this game totally deserves to be in the number three slot. It's it's really fun, and it feels uh, fresh to me in, in a lot of different ways. There's some great stuff going on. All right, we've now reached game number two, and this one is Lost Ruins of Arnak. Uh, now, I've only played this game three times, which is less than Beyond the Sun and some of the other games that I've talked about so far, but I have had such incredible highs playing this game that um, for a split second, I considered making this my number one, but I, I do think this one deserves to be in the number two slot. Uh, now, Lost Ruins of Arnak, uh, somewhat similarly to Dune Imperium, is a deck-building game with a worker placement element. Now, in Dune Imperium, the worker placement was a primary mechanism, like one of the main things that you're doing, whereas in Lost Ruins of Arnak, you do have just two workers, a lot like Dune Imperium, but you're going to do so many other things in addition to moving those workers around. You're going to be placing a couple of workers and then possibly doing a bunch of other things, so it feels like a different beast. Also, Lost Ruins of Arnak is... I think a heavier Euro-style experience. There is certainly less randomness in this one than Dune Imperium. And realistically, this game is all about going up this temple track that's on the right side of the board. Um, you're going to be doing a wide variety of things as you're buying new cards that you can add into your deck to then play to get a bunch of effects. You will also be exploring new spots on the left side of the board where you can send your workers. But all of these things in general are going to give you stuff, various resources, that you will then use to move up that temple track. Um, this is not a game, from my experience, um, where um, there are multiple ways to win. This game is all about getting up that temple track as quickly as you can, while also doing a wide variety of other things that can make you win the game. Uh, now, you won't necessarily win if you're at the top of the temple track, but I don't think you're going to win if you ignore that part of the game. And so it's important to kind of emphasize that. I've played this game uh, with people who tried to ignore the temple track and win the game, you know, just exploring and just fighting monsters, but uh, it seems like that just cannot compete, and I think that was not the design intent. Uh, so I'm not going to look at that as a flaw in the game, I'm just going to say this is a game where you go into it knowing that um, all of these resources that you have, most of them are going to end up going into that temple track, because as you go up it, you also get a wide variety of benefits. Um, now, I don't want to talk about really any of the uh, other details about this game, but I do want to mention that there are two different boards. Um, there, On one side of the board, there is a bird temple, and on the other side, there is a snake temple. And the main difference between these two boards is that temple. Um, the temple is significantly different between the two. And I do want to say that I've played with the snake board twice and the bird board once. And if I was just putting Lost Ruins of Arnak on this list based off of the bird board, 
I think this one would probably be more in the six to seven uh, ranking on this list. But when playing with the snake board, it shoots right up to the number two position. I don't want to go into all of the details of it, but I feel like the snake board is a much more balanced and far more fascinating experience. I will never be playing this game without the snake board again. And I honestly think that if you are wanting to jump into Lost Ruins of Arnak, the extra complexity of that uh, snake board is not going to be so much that um, you're going to bounce off this game. I think people could probably just start playing with the snake board. Uh, certainly, if you play with the bird board, just play with it once and then try that snake board out because uh, you will very likely enjoy that one even more. Uh, again, not going into all of the specifics of it, but uh, I think that this is just such an amazing package. It's gorgeous. I'll tell you that. Uh, for a little while, uh, Beyond the Sun actually was in my number two spot about a month or two ago. Um, but the the vibrancy that comes off of the uh, Lost Ruins of Arnak uh, really does help. In general, I don't care that much about theme in games, and I in generally don't care that much about art. But the last time I played Lost Ruins of Arnak, I remember just sitting there thinking, man, this game is gorgeous. I just love all the bits, and I love the way the board looks, and I love how all of this goes together. And I think that does actually lift it up just a little bit, giving it a slight edge on Beyond the Sun. Um, also, as I mentioned right at the beginning of this section, I've had such incredible highs playing this game that I, I just have to acknowledge them. Um, I've had really high moments playing Beyond the Sun, but I think they've been higher with Lost Runes of Arnak as your plan just comes together. You're trying to piece this together. You're buying new cards that are going into your deck. You're playing these cards out to get this, to get that, to piece this together, and you're trying to plan all of your resources, and you're using bonuses, and you're using assistance to go up the track. And uh, when that works, it, it just it's an amazing Euro game feeling. It's the kind of thing that you know people who like pushing cubes around are going to be all about, and I'm certainly one of those people. And I love that in this game, there are no cubes. There are wonderful uh, components that you are playing with. Um, I could ramble on about Lost Runes of Arnak a lot more, but I do want to say that this is an exceptional gaming experience, especially with the snake board, and I am looking forward to many more plays of this in the future. Um, I, I will round this out by saying that it's not the quickest game in the world. Um, I have played a four-player game that did go over three hours, but I've also played a three-player game that just took 90 minutes. So I think it's going to be very player dependent. Uh, certain people who can fall into analysis paralysis can really fall into that pit when it comes to Lost Ruins of Arnak. There is a lot that you have to uh, think about um, based off of the order in which you're going to be playing your cards out and how you're going to be spending your resources that you are acquiring. Uh, so some people can fall into that a very long way, whereas other people don't. And like I said, uh, I played a three-player game on the snake board in 90 minutes, which made me very happy. I was a little worried that this game was just too long, but now I realize that it's just potentially too much of an AP trap for certain people. And honestly, that game that I played that was over three hours, I still enjoyed the heck out of that experience. Uh, even though it was long, I was playing an amazing game with some of my favorite people. So, you know, what is there to complain about there? Uh, all right, I think that is going to wrap up number two, which means we have reached game number one for last year, and that one is Anno 1800. Uh, this game hit our group uh, like a uh, tsunami. <laughs> I remember uh, when this one was first announced, uh, when it first uh, actually went up on Tabletop Simulator, I uh, I was interested to try it. This is a Martin Wallace game, and I really like brass. Uh, that was enough for me to want to give this a shot. And so I started reading the rules, and I remember being about halfway through the rules, just getting more and more excited, and I was kind of chatting with my friends like, hey, this game looks really neat. And uh, later on that specific day, we actually ended up playing half of a game. I was so excited to try this game based off of just reading the rules that, and I only had two hours to play, that I was like, hey, 
to a couple of my friends, let's play this for two hours. After two hours, I have to go, but I just want to experience this to try it. And all three of us were so fascinated and we loved that almost game that we played. We played about half of the game in two hours, which doesn't sound great, but this game has a lot of weird things going on that is a little bit unusual, which will oftentimes make that first game go very long, whereas the other games will not. Uh, I've played Anno 1800 six times at this point, and um, in general, most of those plays came in at 90 minutes. Many of those games have been at four players. So being able to play an amazing game with four players in 90 minutes is certainly one of the reasons why this is so far up on the list. Uh, but without going into too many of the details, uh, because I did actually make a tutorial for this game, so feel free to check that out if you want to learn more. Um, without going into too many details, this game is all about trying to satisfy the conditions on the cards that you have in your hand. And you satisfy those conditions by building out an infrastructure in front of you that your opponents can use in a positive interaction type of way. Uh, if somebody wants to use my beer making uh, spot, I can't say no, uh, but I will actually gain a gold resource, which I can then use to do other stuff, which is certainly a good thing to have. So this is a game where each time I play it, I kind of build up a mental network of what everybody is doing. Uh, each time I've played, uh, I'm able to remember what people have on their board. I remember in the last play, um, we were about middle way through the game, and I'm looking at the cards in my hand, and I'm just like, okay, this card needs sausage, and it needs uh, soap. Uh, Nick has sausage, Hung has soap. Okay, so I can play that out there, and I don't even have to look at their boards. I just remember that they have those, because as we talk through the game, we just kind of remember it. I've heard uh, Hung play cards that had needed sausage and he'll mention, you know, hey, Nick, I'm using your sausage. And it just kind of lodges into my brain. And sure, there's a bit of memory there, but I haven't had a problem with that. And I don't have the best memory in the world. And I think it's just a wonderful ecosystem. Uh, you know, if Nick over there builds a sewing machine, suddenly everybody goes, Nick builds a sewing machine. And I'm not going to go into the reasons why, but building a sewing machine is an exciting moment in the overall arc of this game. <laughs> and oftentimes that kind of ushers in some other stuff that happens. And, and I love that. I think it's really great. Um, this is a game where uh, oftentimes when your opponent does something, you are happy that they did that because you are now going to borrow that thing. And again, when you borrow it, they also gain a benefit. And I'm trying really hard not to go into the specifics here. Uh, there's a lot of information about Anno 1800 out there, including my uh, tutorial. Uh, now, I do want to say that the highs that I've had when playing this game have been easily the highest uh, out of any game that I've played this year. And I've really enjoyed so many games. I've talked up a lot of them on this list, although this is my top 10 list, so it's not surprising that I have a lot of good things to say. Um, I think that the Anno system is brilliant. Uh, I think that, honestly, there could be an even better game made from this system. Uh, there are a ton of different industries that you will be able to build out on your board. And in my six plays, there are some of them that I have never seen played. Uh, and there are a couple that I've barely ever seen played and others that are played all the time. And maybe that is a group think thing, or maybe this is just a first uh, version of a new mechanic that can be streamlined even more. And that really excites me. The fact that uh, by far and away, my favorite game that came out last year still feels like it could be even better is uh, <laughs> something that I, I, it makes me really look forward to new games coming out from Martin Wallace in particular. Uh, I am hoping that a, a new game comes out using this system that maybe balances things out even more and really leans into the awesome parts of this game. Uh, because <laughs> even as it is, it is absolutely exceptional. I don't think it's necessarily flawed. I just think that there is an even better game for Jonathan Cox in there than this one that is already at the number one spot. Um, I guess the last thing I should say, I haven't gone into the specifics and I know maybe I probably should have, but the last thing I do want to mention is that this is a heavy gaming experience, not crazy heavy, but it leans on the heavy gaming experience that is so quick to teach. A game like Praga Kaput Regni, 
took me an hour to teach. Uh, a game like even Lost Runes of Arnak is probably going to take, you know, 30 or so minutes to teach, maybe a little bit more. But um, uh, Anno 1800, I can teach in like 15 minutes. Uh, I think the systems are just so simple. There's just not that many rules. It's very elegant when it comes to how all these things interact. And that is a big reason why I have enjoyed it. But honestly, the main reason going back to it is that uh, the fun value has been so high. And I played this game six times. Um, I remember when I played my fifth play of it, I had a pretty good time, but that game didn't work out as well. And I was starting to worry if maybe it was getting a little bit samey, but then I played it a sixth time. And that was one of the best games of Anno 1800 that I played. And that game did feel quite a bit different. So I think there is a lot more to be found within this game. And like I already mentioned, I am hoping that there are going to be more games in the future that piggyback off of the wonderful mechanical ideas that started in Anno 1800, because I think um, there's a lot more great places that this could go. All right, <laughs> that has wrapped up this list. Uh, this has been on my mind for a while, probably about two months. I've been uh, thinking about this list. I've been jockeying these games around, and there were several games that I went out of my way to try and play before I filmed this list. Uh, Dune Imperium is one of those, and it did end up making its way onto this list, so I'm happy that that happened. Um, there are a lot more games that I played over the last year that would have landed in the teens area, and you know there are some games I played last year that I didn't enjoy quite so much, but I, I will say that I've had some amazing gaming experiences in the last year with respect to these games that I've mentioned, and uh, we have been playing a lot of them over and over again. Historically, I oftentimes play games like two to three times, and then I move on to the next thing. I am very much a cult of the new type person, so the fact that I played Anno 1800 six times and Beyond the Sun five times uh, is a big testament to these games. Um, I've only played Lost Runes of Arnak three times, but I am looking forward to making that happen more. I am still playing a lot of new games, <laughs> but we are working in a bunch of other games, and also we've been playing older games. Uh, lately, I've played uh, Feast for Odin with the Norwegians expansion twice in the last week alone, and that is still one of the best games that I've ever played. But either way, I think I should bring this podcast to a close. Thanks for listening.